Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. The Global Story is your new daily deep dive into one big news story. And it's coming soon, Monday to Friday, from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. You're listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Adam Hart and this is Tooth and Claw, the series where I explore our complex and challenging relationships with Earth's greatest predators through the people who have spent their lives studying, protecting and at times narrowly escaping them. This week's predator is the largest terrestrial member of the weasel family, or mustelids. Looking rather like a small bear with large flat feet, heavy fur and a long bushy tail, this animal is found in the snowy tundra and boreal forests of the Northern Hemisphere. They may take advantage of kills by wolves, bears and lynx, but they can also use strong jaws to bring down their own prey, even moose and reindeer that have become stranded during snowstorms. We're talking about an animal with a wonderful scientific name of gulo gulo, which means glutton. And indeed, glutton is one of its common names, but it's much better known as the wolverine. Joining me to tell us more about these mysterious mustelids are Rebecca Waters, founder and director of the Mongolian Wolverine Project, as well as executive director of the Wolverine Foundation, a non-profit that's dedicated to advancing science-based conservation of wolverines. She's based in Montana in the US. And Jenny Mattison, a researcher at the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research, who is involved in the monitoring of wolverines in Scandinavia and has studied the interactions between wolverines and the Eurasian lynx, as well as their predation of reindeer. Now, first, Rebecca, when you say wolverine, many people, especially those in countries that don't have any, are probably more familiar with the comic book superhero from the X-Men, with retractable claws played famously by Hugh Jackman in the films. We've heard before on Tooth and Claw with Spotted Hyenas about how fictional depictions of animals can actually be quite problematic. Do you think that the X-Men link has helped create awareness of wolverines or perhaps created some misconceptions? I think it's a little bit of both. With a species like the wolverine, which is so obscure to so many people, including, of course, Hugh Jackman, who famously, in wolverine circles anyway, did not know that a wolverine was a real animal when he started playing that that role. (laughs) Um, You know, any attention can be good attention because it makes people aware that there actually is an animal called a wolverine and that it's not something mythological or fictional. On the other hand, I think that some of the portrayals of the kind of berserker nature of the superhero have led people to feel that wolverines are more aggressive than they might actually be in real life. So there's a bit of a trade-off there. And I guess this is something we should sort of dispel, you know, right here at the beginning. Are wolverines a danger to people in any way? No, not as far as any recorded information that I'm aware of. I think if you were, you know, seriously incapacitated in the backcountry and bleeding profusely, you know, you might attract the the unwanted and negative attention of a wolverine, but there are no recorded attacks on people that I'm aware of. Well, that, that's good to know. And, and bringing in Jenny, wolverines are known by many names. I mentioned glutton earlier. They're also called skunk bears. What are they known as in Scandinavia and where have some of these names come from? In Scandinavia, they're called the uh, Yav, and I don't know where that word comes from. It's not like the the, the French uh, gluten. It's like more something that eats a lot, and that's the same with the with the German filfrase. And I think that comes from 
the Wolverine is uh, it cache things. So it comes when it finds the carcass, it uh, parts it in many small pieces and it goes away and hide it. Uh, so in a very short time, it could remove a full carcass. But it's not because it's actually eating it. It's more because it's caching it in the different places. And Rebecca, many people listening aren't going to know really what a Wolverine looks like. If you say Wolverine, they're probably imagining in many cases Hugh Jackman. How would you describe one? They look like small bears and that is reflected in some of the other common names for them, such as skunk bear. A lot of people think that they're in the bear family. They're sort of like miniature little bear-like animals with a with a bushier tail. They have a dark uh, brown pelt and they have sort of tannish side stripes that are varying degrees of dark. So sometimes you can see that side stripe. It's just a single stripe that runs down the flank of the animal and across the tail. Sometimes you can see it really well and sometimes you can't see it as well. They have a little mask over over their eyes, again, sort of tannish in color. And they have uh, distinctive white chest patches. So there's a series of markings on a wolverine's chest that is distinct to each individual wolverine. You can actually identify wolverines by the, the chest pattern patch that they have. And notably, they have very, very large feet. For example, the, the Nez Perce nation refers to them as uh, carriers of snowshoes. That's how the word translates. And that those, those huge feet are a really distinctive feature when you're, when you're watching a wolverine. And that presumably lets them move around in these snowy environments much, much more easily than they could otherwise. Yes, exactly. They are able to sort of float on top of deep snow, and we think that that's one of the reasons that they are able to sort of monopolize these highly snowy, cold areas where they're found around the world. Because, of course, cats and dogs are up on their toes. They walk what we refer to as digigrade, so they're sort of like they have these sort of pointy feet without much surface area, whereas a wolverine, like humans and bears, walks plantigrade. They have their heels down, and that gives them a much greater surface area to stay up on top of the snow. And I mentioned in the intro that they're sort of mysterious mustelids, and I I threw that word in. Can you just explain what the mustelid family is and and some of the other members of that group? Mustelids are weasels. That's the common name for them. So you have badgers, otters, ermine, stoats, sea otters, martens, pine martens, and sable. Of course, globally, in terms of human history, Sable are probably the most significant mustelid because uh, the sable fur trade was so significant in so many parts of, of Eurasia for such a long time. So those are the mustelids. And have wolverines been historically or even in present day uh, caught and trapped for their fur? They are trapped, yes. They are no longer trapped in the lower 48 United States. There's a moratorium on trapping here where I live, but in Alaska and Canada, they are still trapped and their fur... The population is low enough that the fur is not financially significant in the same way that, for example, sable fur was. But wolverines have such a reputation amongst trappers as being very difficult to catch that they're sort of regarded as like the holy grail or the pinnacle of of trappers' experience as trappers. Like if you can catch a wolverine you are a true master trapper. And so there still is a lot of sort of mystique around um, being able to trap wolverines. And in fact, when we started trapping them for research, it was those successful fur trappers the early wolverine researchers went to to ask, you know, how do we actually get this animal to come into a live trap so we can do our research? <laughs> Interesting, uh, that, that use of sort of local knowledge. Um, Yeni, you've tracked wolverines as well, and you've studied their relationships with the Eurasian lynx. What did you learn about them? Well, we are, we're studying them up in an area where they uh, rely on reindeer, semi-domestic reindeer. 
we were looking at the predation, like how much they were killing. And what we learned there is like the lynx, lynx is a much more efficient predator. The Eurasian lynx is that, it's much bigger than the Canadian lynx. And the wolverine is not so efficient. It can still kill, but it, it's not so efficient. So it does go and uh, it doesn't steal carcasses from the lynx, but it goes and uses whatever the lynx left behind. So it's a sort of scavenging role. Yeah, it's uh, scavenging, yeah. And if they're hunting themselves, what sort of prey are they able to, to take down? Well, in the summertime, it's mostly the calves. So they're more efficient on the small calves. But they can also take uh, adult reindeer. And especially in the winter, as we were talking about before, they have this uh, kind of snowshoes on their feet. So they stay on top of the snow while an adult reindeer can like sink in the snow. So it makes it easier for it also to take adult ones, especially when it's uneven ground and things. So it's kind of in terrain where the wolverine has a benefit over the reindeer. And we've seen all sorts of patterns of, of predators working together or being solitary throughout Tooth and Claw. Where, where do wolverines sit in that kind of solitary social sort of spectrum? I would say they mostly they're solitary, except for the mother who stays with her cubs. But we have seen them uh, in predation events where they've been more than one. Uh, so they do hunt together occasionally, but they're mostly solitary. So mostly solitary animal, but presumably they get together to mate and, and have young. How does that work? What's the breeding habits of a wolverine? A male usually breed with maybe two to four different females. Uh, so they have like overlapping home ranges uh, of the females. And the female wolverine, they give birth in February, March. And I guess it usually said that uh, Valentine's Day, it's like the birthday for the wolverine. And then they give birth to maybe two to four cups in uh, snow dens, usually. Like they can have these really big holes, but a lot of uh, entries. And it can be like several uh, hundred meters wide in there. So actually, when you try to get in there and find the cups, it can be really difficult. And you have to dig dig like 15 meters of snow to uh, to get down there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So And this, I mean, being down below the snow in the boulder means that they're protected from, from anything else, from other predators and other males. Because I guess they're super vulnerable when they've got, when they've got their cubs down there. And th the female is, is on her own at this point. The male's disappeared, is he? Yeah, yeah. He doesn't take part of uh, raising the young ones. And the cubs, when they're born, they're really tiny and they're white. So they take a, it takes a couple of months before they start moving outside the den. And once they start moving outside the den, are they immediately getting into sort of hunting and things or are they, they very much reliant on the mother being around? Yeah, they rely on the mother until the summer, at least. And they're staying in this kind of dens. They can move then, but they stay in the dens until like maybe May or so. And then they start to move with their mother. Yenny, have you ever seen any cubs? They sound very cute by the way you're describing them. Yeah, they are very, very cute. And I've seen quite a lot of them because we used to mark the cubs in May when they were a couple of months uh, or three months old, maybe, to try to follow them to see the survival of the cubs and stuff. So uh, we had a lot of interesting capture events uh, where you have to try to run them up. <laughs> Either you run them up and then actually the cubs are laying on their back and, and you can catch them or they run down a den and you have to dig them out which is a lot of work. And I presume you have to be a little bit watchful of the mother uh, wolverine. <laughs> yeah, you have to watch her. Uh, she can be a little bit aggressive when you're having the cups, when you're holding the cups. Uh, fair uh, enough. <laughs> that's fair enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as Rebecca mentioned, they don't want to attack us, so they're just trying to defend their cub. Where wolverines live up in the, up in the snowy tundra in the boreal forests, what types of other predators are there present? And there are also uh, the wolves in some areas, at least in Scandinavia. I guess it's even more than North America. So uh, they can use kills from the, from the wolves as well. How do they sort of interact with wolves? Do they keep themselves to themselves? Are there any sort of standoffs between the two species? 
Well, that's a tricky question. I don't know, but I think probably the Wolverine stays away from the wolves if they can, because they are usually pack animals yeah. and bigger. So I would assume that they are a bit careful. If it feels like it makes sense if you've got a lot of wolves present. You're listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Adam Hart and this is Tooth and Claw. Today we're talking about a predator with a reputation for gluttony who inhabits the snowy tundra and boreal forests of the Northern Hemisphere. And joining us are Jenny Mattison from the Norwegian Institute for Nature Research and Rebecca Waters of the Wolverine Foundation and the Mongolian Wolverine Project. Rebecca, we've mentioned already that wolverines are very unlikely to attack a person, but you've been pretty up close to one in the wild, haven't you? I have, actually. I became involved with wolverine research. I was actually in the Western United States doing my master's work on wolves and uh, the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone. And I ended up going out on a wolverine expedition with a colleague of mine whose hiking companion had sort of bailed out of their uh, trip to investigate some GPS collar locations. So he wanted to hike into these these collar locations where they knew the wolverine had been hanging out. It was a 42-mile round-trip hike, and we had two days to do it, (laughs) Um, so like one overnight. And he told me, you know, I don't think we're going to see the wolverine. Nobody ever sees a wolverine uh, in the wild when they go out on these these trips to like investigate these collar sites. But we wanted to look at what the wolverine had been doing in those in those places where he had been hanging out. And so we hiked in and we were making camp uh, that first night and my colleague had his dog with him. It was dusk and we were just washing the dishes from having eaten our little, you know, dehydrated camp food. All of a sudden I I heard him yelling to the dog, Dusty, no, come back, come back. (laughs) And I looked at him and I was like, what's happening? And he's like, oh, the Wolverine, it's right there. And our camp was like on this little ledge. And so I ran to the edge of the the ledge and looked over and the dog and the Wolverine were like on a collision course with each other. They were running towards each other. And thank goodness that dog was obedient. She came back because I don't think it would have ended particularly well for her. But then the Wolverine came up and circled our campsite for probably about 15 minutes. And this animal was just so curious about us. He was running around, you know, from like snow patch to snow patch and from rock to rock. And he would like hop up on a rock and look at us and kind of cock his head and then jump down and run to another vantage point and and jump up on the rock and, and look at us again. You know, we were looking at him in total fascination and he was looking at us in total fascination. And it was just one of those really... I don't know, profound moments of connection with with an animal and with nature. So yeah, really cool. And that's the only wolverine I've seen in the wild. Uh, I've seen a lot of them on cameras. I've handled them in traps, but that's the only time that I've ever actually seen one by pure happenstance. I mean, that's a remarkable sighting. And I should imagine the sort of thing that, that many people would love, you know, to love to see walking around the sort of northern US and, and so on. But you, you also study wolverines in Mongolia as, as well. Do, do people's attitudes towards them change across the world and between their ranges? Yeah, I would say, you know, in the US, uh, what happened in the in the Rockies, so in the, the sort of southern part of their range in the United States, wolverines were extirpated entirely when the US government was was poisoning wolves. Because, of course, wolverines are so good at finding carrion on the landscape and they would poison these carcasses for wolves. And the wolverine population was almost entirely knocked out of the lower 48 states. So people here are, as we were discussing earlier, either they think that they are 
Hugh Jackman style X-Men. They sometimes they think I'm talking about werewolves, actually. Um, like, what's it like to study werewolves? No, it's a Wolverine. Um, so I think here there's just a general lack of knowledge about them, whereas in places where they have not been extirpated, so amongst indigenous cultures that have been living with them for a long time and have had a really like deep history of observing the species, there's a lot more significance and sort of knowledge about the species. And there are spiritual beliefs that are connected to wolverines in a lot of uh, indigenous cultures in North America, Siberia, Mongolia. And that sort of relationship where you have a kind of social relationship with wildlife, I think is quite different from what we see in European descended colonizing cultures in, in the United States. So yeah, I would say that there's a change in attitudes depending on where you are in the world. You mentioned the sort of spiritual and cultural links. Are there any particular motifs that sort of develop when you're thinking about wolverines or are there lots of different types of beliefs around them? I think there's a sort of unifying uh, theme of them being tricksters. A lot of places see them as somewhat dubious. They are neither good nor bad. They can cause a lot of trouble. You see in Mongolia, they're associated specifically with Erle Khan, who's the king of the underworld. And then in a lot of places in North America, you have this this theme of the important like trickster figure who can bring fortune, but who's kind of a buffoon sometimes and sometimes can cause problems for people as well, but should always be respected because, you know, you don't want it to, to tip into that that negative territory. For me, in North America and in Mongolia, there are just these amazing mountaineers who can survive in a climate that is so harsh and so beautiful. Yeni, we, we heard just now about Rebecca's amazing sort of sighting of a wolverine and and that sort of connection with, with culture and everything. Is there a moment that you first knew that wolverines were the, sort of the animal for you, the one that you wanted to study for the rest of your life? Yeah, it's actually, I, uh, I'm coming from the southern part of Sweden where we have no mountains, uh, naturally no wolverines. But I was reading actually a National Geographic uh, article about wolverines when I was young and I got really fascinated. So since then, I always wanted to work with wolverines. But it took me many years, of course, before I got to do that. So my wolverine career actually started in Montana. So I was worked there two winters to capture wolverines before I started to work in Scandinavia. We've mentioned it several times that wolverines sort of inhabit this quite wide range across the world, the northern latitudes of, of North America, of Europe, of, of Asia. Are the wolverines that you find in these areas, are they, are they similar? Are there differences between them and these different populations? I think they are uh, very similar. The only thing maybe they have, uh, what I've seen uh, from personal experience is that they have a little bit more white patterns in the States than they do in Scandinavia. But otherwise, they're about the same size. They behave similar. And a depressingly common theme uh, across many of the programmes that we've done looking at predators is that predators are often in trouble. They have conservation issues. Um, how are populations of wolverines doing in, in Scandinavia at the moment? They're doing good at the moment. It's quite a big population in Sweden, uh, a little bit smaller in Norway, but they're kind of like one Scandinavian population. So they're doing good now. But there was a lot of wolverines uh, back in the 1800s, and then they pretty much get all exterminated. Uh, but then they protected them in the 70s. And now they've increased. So now they're actually at the level where they're trying to keep them down because they're causing conflict. And you track and, and monitor wolverines quite extensively in Scandinavia and you're, you're heavily involved with that. Uh, is that the case in other parts of their range or are you sort of ahead of the curve there? Uh, I don't actually know, but I, I guess we are because this conflict with the semi-domestic reindeer and uh, domestic sheep, it's a big push uh, to do research and to look at predation patterns. 
so what we do then is we put these GPS collars on the Wolverines and then we follow every step pretty much what they do. So it's super interesting. You get to go and track the Wolverines in the summer and the winter and see what they've been doing. Well, well looking to the future for Wolverines, you know, we, we've talked about their summer and winter behaviour. We talked about them stripping carcasses, caching food. Presumably the cold snow helping to, to preserve that in some way. We're also dealing with a species that's very much northern latitude and, and, and up there in the, in the sort of the colder parts of the world. Is climate change likely to be a, a major threat to wolverines and, and their food supply? I guess, um, f- first of all, you know, to Rebecca and then, and then Yeni will get your, your thoughts on it. I think climate change is going to hit them really very hard. I think it is a major impending threat, mostly because, as we were discussing, the females den in the snow – Those snow dens provide both protection from other predators and also insulation from the cold because the kits are born in um, February. It's still pretty, pretty cold. And then again, snow, as we were also discussing, provides kind of exclusion zone for other predators that aren't as efficient at traveling over snow as a wolverine. So the wolverine is able to monopolize the niche it monopolizes and reproduce successfully because of cold, snowy environments. And if you, if you start to lose snowpack, out of the area that wolverines have traditionally inhabited, I think you're going to see a lot of problems with, you know, maintaining a population of a naturally rare, highly territorial animal. I'm quite concerned about climate change and the future of wolverines. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? It's quite a subtle effect in some respects, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, a part of their breeding ecology, but it's so central to what they do that, that changes in snowpack is going gonna, is gonna to basically sink them. Is that, is that a fair point? If they, if they don't have that cover, they're basically going to struggle to an extent that they're going to be unable to continue. I think that that's the case, yes. And I, I think the point you make about it being subtle is a, is a hard... It's tricky for people to get their heads around because, you know, it's not like a wolverine actually requires snow in order to biologically have kits, right? A, a wolverine can actually give birth outside of the snow and like they give birth under rocks or under shrub piles. And you see that in, in places where the territories are fully occupied, like places where the landscape is saturated with wolverines. You have these sort of excess individuals who do actually reproduce outside of snowpack and outside of snow dens. But can you maintain a wolverine population over the long term if they don't have that kind of protection? When you get into policies for conservation, there's a lot of discussion about this. And the other thing that's tricky, as Yeni mentioned, there have been these extirpation events in certain areas, and then the wolverine population is currently rebounding. So you're seeing an actual expansion, and this is true in in the northern Rockies in the United States as well, you're seeing an expansion of the population in terms of numbers and in terms of the territory that they're occupying at the same time that climate change is coming like a gigantic steamroller not that far down the line. I mean, we're seeing these effects now in terms of losing snowpack. It's kind of a tricky thing to get your head around because those effects are really subtle and they seem to be in contradiction of other observable trends that are happening right now. As well as the issues with, with denning and, and the problems of, of them being able to bring up their, their cubs, are there other issues that climate change might cause for wolverines? Yeah. So one of the other ways in which we see this this relationship between wolverines and cold landscapes is the caching of food. As Yanni mentioned, they will dismantle a carcass and they will stash all of the pieces of the carcass in different cold places. And wolverines are, they have really enormous territories. So they'll patrol those territories and they'll run along the edges of the territory. They'll go through their territory, making sure there are not other same-sex wolverines in the same territory. And they know that they have those stashes of food here and there, and they'll come and visit them, dig into the snow, eat a bit, and then go on and continue to patrol their territory. If you lose 
a snowpack, you start to see potentially competition for food from microbes, which are going to decompose the, the stashes of food much faster. And then the wolverine might not be able to patrol its territory and, and keep itself fed as effectively as it, it can now with cold weather and, and snowpack. So just to, j- just to be really clear about it, wh- when it's warming up, what's, what's going to be specifically happening to those microbes that's going to be a problem for wolverines? It's sort of like if you have a piece of meat and you leave it in your freezer versus putting it out on your counter, it's going to last much longer because freezing prevents microbes from, from growing. Whereas if you just leave your, your piece of meat out on the counter, it's going to rot much faster. So for the wolverines, it's kind of this the same dilemma. You know, they, they either have a refrigerator freezer system or they don't. That's the issue with microbes and, and preserving their food. So climate change is obviously going to be an issue moving ahead for, for wolverines across their range. Yeni, do you see any particular problems arising in Scandinavia, either from climate change or, or any other factors that are uh, influencing their lives? Well, in Scandinavia, climate change has at least not yet has been any major problem. Uh, we see that the population... Uh, are actually uh, recolonizing the south. So they get into parts where there's much less snow and they seem to be doing fine. They, uh, they're denning and they're caching and they can also cache, instead of caching in, in snow, they can also cache in bogs, which also keeps a, a very good environment to prevent microbes. The major problem in, in Scandinavia is actually the conflicts between the sheep, like the husbandry owners and, uh, and the wolverines as they do predate on both semi-domestic reindeer, which are owned by uh, Sami people, and then domestic sheep. So here in Scandinavia, the Sami people are indigenous people. And in the Sami uh, culture, it's very, like the reindeer husbander is a big part of the Sami culture. So of course, it's uh, not very nice for them when the predator are eating their prey. And it's not only the wolverines, it's wolverine and lynx, brown bears and golden eagles. So I think for the wolverines in Scandinavia, the biggest threat is the conflict with the, with the husbandry. Is that conflict normally expressed as, as people killing wolverines, persecution of them to, to prevent livestock being taken? Yeah, so there are, of course, some poaching going on, but there's also a lot of uh, legal killing because uh, the government wants to reduce the conflict. So they have very high hunting quotas on wolverines in Norway. And what sort of things can we do to try and prevent those conflicts or at least try and make those conflicts less um, impactful for, for both sides? I think it's also, it's more knowledge, of course. The more you know uh, about what's going on, how much reindeer do they actually take, then we can make a more fair compensation system because there is a compensation system in place now. The reindeer owners do get money for, for losses, but it's always a conflict on how much they're actually taking. For the reindeer, it's pretty much only compensation you can do. But for the sheep farming... Like in Norway, we have two million sheep that are free ranging the whole summer. And they are like spread out all over the mountains and no one is really hurting them and they're not inside fences. So of course there you could maybe do more preventive measures like actually guarding them a bit more or have guarding dogs or something like that. You've been listening to Tooth and Claw with Wolverine experts Rebecca Waters and Jenny Mattison. I'm Adam Hart and the producer was Jonathan Blackwell. You can listen to previous episodes by going to bbcworldservice.com forward slash discovery. Food is incredibly important in the world. It's about survival. Culinary heritage. Culture and tradition. Different relationships across the world. The Food Chain from the BBC World Service examines the business, science and cultural significance of food. If this kind of food is lost, our community will lose its identity. 
and what it takes to put food on your plate. This is an incredible journey. Search for The Food Chain wherever you get your BBC podcasts.